0: good
2: evening everyone and welcome to addiction treatments That work I'm your host Kenneth Anderson today is December 22nd of 2011 and tonight our guest will be Shiloh Murphy who uh, is the executive director of the the uh, People's harm reduction Alliance which is in Washington State and then our second guest will be Michelle Dunbar, who will be talking to us about St. Jude Retreat House. Before we start the show, I'm going to do a little blurb for our website and our book. Our website is called hamsnetwork.org. We are a free-of-charge, lay-led support group for people who want to make any positive change in their drinking habits, from safer drinking to reduced drinking to quitting altogether. Our book is called How to Change Your Drinking, A Harm Reduction Guide to Alcohol. It's available from Amazon. For more information, go to hamsnetwork.org book. Our first guest tonight is Shiloh Murphy from the People's Harm Reduction Alliance, and we're going to be talking a lot about drug user stigma, also about what the Alliance does. And Shiloh is here, so welcome to the show. Shiloh, how are you doing? Good. Thank you. Well, I'm glad to have you here. Um, tell us a little bit about the People's Harm Reduction Alliance. What kind of services does it offer? What is it? People's
1: Harm Reduction Alliance is a nonprofit That was founded in 2007. And it was founded under kind of, lack of a better term, an extreme circumstance. Um, The University District Needle Exchange is 22 years old. Um, The People's Harm Reduction Alliance is almost, next year will be five. And so it was started in 1990 by a man named Bob Quinn, and he ran it with this nonprofit from Beyond Chaos. Uh, uh, he ran for a nonprofit beyond chaos for uh, eight years and then Street Outreach Service ran it for like close to a decade. And then it, the, both nonprofits kind of disintegrated and we had to reform. And like, uh, we, me and two other people co founded this Jeff Corey and Tom Fitzpatrick. And we founded the new kind of nonprofit that ran it with this idea that we were going to be peer run. And what do we mean by peer-run is the people who come to the table to get needles are going to be the people who make the decisions on the board, going to make the people who make the decisions with the staff, and are just going to be run by them. Um, so we did that, and we only had 3 months supplies to kind of survive, and we were able to pull it off. And the services we run um, are all services that the people who we serve ask for. We have a four-day a week needle exchange. We give out. We also have a crack services, which we give out crack stems and crack kits for people who use uh, crack cocaine. We also provide hepatitis C testing. We also provide vein care. Um, and so those are kind of the services we do. We also do a delivery service now to the suburbs of the city of Seattle. Does that? I mean, it's a long answer, but does that kind of help yes. understand? Yes.
2: Yes. How do you find that uh, being peer run works out? Does that work out well?
1: Yes. Um, I find that it's a lot easier than people think, and I think there's a lot more fear to being peer run than there is than there is actually being peer run. Um, I think you start. I think you. It's like this process of educating the people you serve and educating the people who are doing the service by you know talking to them and saying, "Hey, we want you to be in charge and I think initially people were like they don't really want us to be in charge, and when we really kept the message we we want you to make the decisions they're your decisions, it became this transforming experience for a lot of people who are involved who you know say that this and so the people started stating this is my needle exchange instead of this is the needle exchange. And people started saying, hey, you know, little things like, why don't we put the cookers out here so people will take more to, you know, why don't we do crack services? You know, why, for example, we went need-based and we no longer, we stopped one for one because that's what the participants wanted. And so we, all of those systems were put in place by peers. And so it's actually been a really fun and exciting thing because you have the best and the brightest people to run a needle exchange in your own community. And something that I've really found strongly is it should be, whoever the community is should decide its own destiny. If you are a group of drug users, drug users should decide the drug users' community and services. If you are, for example... Um, if you are a gay and lesbian community, gay and lesbian people should decide what's right for that community. Um, it's something that I feel strongly about. Um, and I can't tell you how excited I am coming to work because all we do is talk philosophy and we talk, you know, ways to better this program every day. So it's it's been a real treat to have all of the drug users and, you know, myself as a drug user, You know, it makes my life a lot easier not to feel the shame of, you know, and having to keep keep silent about my own drug use in the needle exchange world.
2: Well, we've tried to do a similar thing um, with our online groups for our alcohol harm reduction. And if there's an issue that comes up, for most issues, we want to have the participants vote on it. So we'll put up a poll online online. And we'll let the people vote and say, do you want to do this or do you want to do that? And it works a lot better, you know, when people, you know, get a majority vote and, you know, we go with what the majority of people want. So I think it's a really good model to go with.
1: We do a similar thing. So we do, the, it's you know, the way we kind of do it is we come up with if there's an issue that we like think this will be changed. And how you can do that is participants, at the table just say, we don't like this, this should be changed. Someone from the table can, someone from the board, because we have board members who come to the table all the time to exchange. Um, they all, uh, you know, any way can talk about, kind of bring up a topic, right? And if we think, and if this topic becomes, you know, like, let's talk about it, we, we kind of come up with somewhere between two and sometimes five kind of options, Right. And that's through, and it's really peers who are kind of coming up with the solutions, and then we just say a vote, right? And you know, occasionally we'll have a runoff vote if it's still split up. You know, we'll take like the two or three, you know, most popular ideas. You know, and so we do that. And for like for example, we had to cut our service from seven days a week to four days a week because of financial constraints, and the days that got closed were voted on by the participants. You know, so they decided the days that weren't going to be open
2: well, that makes um, a lot of sense, yeah
1: yeah, so and it I think the more important- most important thing it is their service. I think a lot of people come to needle changes in a kind of health prevention model, and I think and that's in some ways how the harm reduction in some ways has failed drug users is because in the, in the beginning they started, they weren't really members of the community and they didn't, stay they, you know, they, they had something that, that drug users wanted and then they started their, that kind of imbalanced power structure that kind of exacerbated over time um, where I think it's, we come with a human rights organization. <clears throat> it is their human rights first. And it's the side effect that they do, we do health prevention. Because that's what the participants wanted us to do—is to do a needle exchange and to do all of these services. And so, it's just—it's it, a different mindset and comes out with different results. You know, we still obviously prevent disease, but we do it with a human rights approach, and we 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 kind of encourage the idea that you can be as open about your drug use, and this is a safe place, and. You can We can talk real here, you know, we can talk about how the police harass you, we can talk about how the system screws you over, we can also talk about how you're, you just had a baby, or we can talk about how you just got into a really fancy apartment, or you just got an iPhone, you know, and it becomes much more of a community feel to it.
2: Well, I'm very much supportive of the idea that, you know, it's up to the individual to decide for themselves what they're going to put into their own body, whether it's drugs or alcohol or cigarettes. And, you know, people know things like cigarettes are bad for them, but it's it's really the right of the individual. It's not something the government should be running around telling people.
1: Well, I, I feel like uh, the way we look at it and the way I look at it is I want people to be the best. Person they can be, and I want them to follow their heart. If they want to be a drug user, I want them to be the best drug user they can be, you know. And and what that means is, I want them to be, I want them to follow their heart. I want them to be the happiest they can be. And if using drugs makes their life a better life, then I want them to do it with all of my blessing possible. And I want to help them in any way they can to be the best drug user. If they want to be clean. I want them to be the best clean person they can be, and I want to assist them in any way they can to be clean. And I feel like this people kind of attack harm reduction as this, like, you know, it's not, you know, it's, a, it's about letting people use drugs. And I think it's about getting people to follow their own hearts. And I think you can use harm reduction to be completely sober. You can use harm reduction to use, you know, once a week. You know, you can use it to use, you know, be moderate in your use. You can also use it to be safe while using a large amount, you know. I think the beautifulness of it is it, it it's, it's a gray system, you know. It doesn't take a lot of hard lines, and that way it can be really focused and mutated. Just like, you know, your groups work primarily with alcohol, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And our groups, you know... our our talk on alcohol is really about reducing the mixing of the drugs Mm -hmm. Um, not so alcohol focused but we both can do a very adequate job in working with both populations
2: yeah speaking of that uh, today this afternoon I just uh, did an alcohol harm reduction group at vocal drug users union you know them in uh, Brooklyn New York yeah. yeah and it was very well received, and people were very happy to be able to talk about different strategies for being safer when they drink for cutting back if that 's their choice for abstaining if that's their choice and It went over very well, so we're hoping to kind of uh get a model going where we can you know have also alcohol harm reduction groups say at the various needle exchanges and drug users group, groups because there's a lot of people that come in there that that like to drink alcohol too.
1: Yeah, and I think I think it's I think the lessons that I have learned working at this needle exchange and being a drug user is you can't really assume people are or are, are not using drugs. For example, when we started giving out crack kits, the biggest group who got crack kits well, people who have gotten needles too So if you were If our goal was to prevent hepatitis C For example And we didn't do any education towards People who use cocaine We would have failed Because mm-hmm. people could have gotten their hepatitis C Through using their cocaine Right
0: yep. And
1: just like you can't assume That you know if you are going to do A overdose prevention For opiate users you know, And you're not going to mention anything on alcohol it's also foolish because that's also an assumption that they don't use alcohol, you know. And, like, for me, with my drug use, I am not – I used to be a bigger drinker, and I'm not anymore because I, I don't like being really dizzy. That's not my favorite feeling. Um, and so I've stopped my alcohol use, you know, where – people always assume that as a drug user I use alcohol because I must use every drug, you know. But Mm -hmm. people use different drugs that have different behaviors, you know. Um, And I think people need to remember that caffeine, cigarettes, alcohol, they're all drugs. And people take drugs each and every day um, without thinking about it. They've just chosen to have a moral... um, Attachment to certain drugs Um, So yeah
2: Well caffeine is one I'm very addicted to because I drink coffee all day long and we were actually talking about this one last week you know if Caffeine was illegal if I had to pay a hundred dollars a teaspoon If it was a 10-year felony to you know have a jar of instant coffee in my house. I'd be in big trouble
1: Well, and, you know, I think if we made coffee illegal and all coffee places shut down, you would see uh, lots of people withdrawing, Mm -hmm. you know. And I think you would really see the effects of it as a drug. And, you know, if you start demonizing people for caffeine use, you know, I think you... you you gain that stigma, which doesn't really help the caffeine user.
2: Yeah, and you would definitely see people selling, you know, the ounces of uh, coffee on the street at extremely high prices, you know. There would definitely be an underground, immediately. Yeah, and
1: the truth of the matter is there's an underground service for whatever people want, you know, and it doesn't really, you know... You have to make a judgment of what's smart to have underground and what's dumb to have underground. You know? Um and clearly we have chosen several drugs which has, you know, just the death tolls, the prison sentences, the things it was cut with to the undesirable people who um you know, traffic in them and I'm not demonizing them, but I you know for example, if you wanted to end the gang violence in whether it be Mexico or the United States, you could legalize drugs and you know, there would still be criminal things for those gangs to do, but they would lose one of the biggest money makers out there for them.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, things like this, there are things that uh, they're crimes of pleasure essentially, but it's drugs uh, gambling, prostitution, things like this, when they're, they're outlawed by puritanical societies, they just cause more problems. When prostitution is outlawed, we get huge, huge jumps in the STDs. When it's legal, you know, prostitutes are checked regularly by doctors and there's very little of sexual disease in comparison to when it's illegal.
1: Well, and look at alcohol. When it was illegal, it had um, huge you know, side effects. People were going blind.
0: Oh, absolutely.
1: Um, and, it was, and it had uh, probably negative things, so much so that they made it legal um, to kind of fix that.
2: Um, so it seems like the good laws are the ones that almost everybody agrees on. Things like, you know, murder should be outlawed. Almost everybody agrees murder is bad, but, you know. Things that are just, you know, one person's pleasure, another person's vice. It's, it's more, but it should be legalized. I,
1: I, think, mm-hmm. I think you showed how the how gray the world is, right? Mm-hmm. We have murder is illegal, but there are exceptions where you could kill someone and you'd be found innocent through self-defense or through other things. So not even, like, killing alone isn't really illegal. It's killing for kind of anger, you know, for your own interest or for vengeance. But if someone's threatening your life, and attacking you, we have justifiable homicide.
2: Oh, um, also, also, when you're in the United States Army, if you're killing for our government, then it's okay. Which, uh, wow, well, that's a whole nother can, can of fish. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah,
1: and I just, I think... The biggest issue, I think, for a drug user, um, which I think most people don't really want to talk about, is the fact of your stigma, the fact that people treat you so poorly. You know, for example, I put on my Facebook, it's a great example, that I said, hey, if your friend tells you that you're a drug user, um, don't shun them or yell at them because you're risking their lives. Because if they use certain drugs, and they overdose and die alone, you know, you're, they. I mean, there's a real chance that they could die. Now, if you said, hey, I, I love you, I support you, I, you know, may not agree with your decision, or I may agree with your decision, but I'll always be your friend, they're going to be more honest about their drug use, and that can only help you and them and the society at large, and so if you... You know, and when I said that many, many people said drugs are bad, drugs are evil, you know, how can you know, like we say that and then when I stated that, hey, just so you know everyone, if you didn't know, I was a drug user and suddenly it was amazing how silent everyone was because when they're not when they're talking in a philosophical way about, you know, people that they deem are evil it's easier than if you talk about uh, about the person you know in front of you.
2: I think that's very true. Now, do you think that words like alcoholic or addict, would you consider them to be a form of hate speech?
1: Well, I can tell you that I think the words like junkie is hate speech. I think the words are, I think words like clean are hate speech because you're also assuming that someone, you're assuming that the person is dirty before they are clean. Um, I think words, I think words like addict, uh, can be hate speech. I think, you know, I think it's like, it's how you identify the terms of the words that kind Mm -hmm. of make them hate speech. Mm -hmm. Um, I when I hear someone who's not in kind of an injection drug user use the word junkie or is not a dr- drug user in general, I feel a little offended and I feel a little angry towards them, you know. Um, and but simultaneously, I feel like a drug user is also allowed to say the word junkie because you know, and it's mm-hmm. not as mean spirited and as harmful.
2: You know, hmm. well, that's true. I mean, you know in rap music, people use the the n word I'm not gonna say it on our show and but it's not considered it's not hate speech in that context because yeah. of the people that are using it so it, it the words i mean whatever word is a hate speech or not really does depend a lot on the context, but you know I hear people say things like, "Oh, you can't believe anything. he says he's an alcoholic or." that one's going to steal that one's an addict you know and it's all this cultural baggage that they've tied to these words you know some people i know that would never tell me a lie in the world are they they are addicted to alcohol or drugs but they're just not liars at heart and they just never would i uh,
1: and i think in some ways people use in some ways people use terms to Discount what people are saying, you know. Whether you're of Arabic descent, well, you can't charge them because you're a Muslim, right?
0: mhm
1: um, And, you know, when... And suddenly it's an excuse for you to say their opinion is wrong. And, you know,
2: so... Well, before the show started, we were talking a little bit about the late Doctor Alan Marlette, and tell me uh, a little bit about how he was friendly to your program, right?
1: Yes, he uh, had come he's come to several meetings. We even asked him to join the board of directors when we founded the People's Harmony Action Alliance. and he his answer was, I thought, very strategic and very honest. And he said he would have no problems joining, but he would probably miss more meetings than he would come to because of his schedule, so you he would probably be better suited to be a supporter and to any individual projects that we needed assistance on, he could assist us and I can tell you that he is very missed, and you know I think people just i think people have forgotten how much influence he has in bringing harm reduction. To the world, and how much influence he had in assisting people's drinking in a frat um like society that we live in in the university district of Seattle,
2: well, I think he's uh, just made amazing contributions um We had him on our advisory board. I was going to suggest that because you mentioned that. Do you have an advisory board?
1: We don't have an advisory board because, and and, and I can tell you this is why we did, didn't, is we felt the advisory boards were, you know, because when we first started, right, uh, there was this idea that, you know, we'll have a board of directors and we'll have an advisory board that's all drug users, right, And
2: mm-hmm. the
1: advisory, and nothing could get passed without being passed by both houses right Mm -hmm. Um, and it was a non-drug user uh, who was one of our co-founders who mentioned that still divides drug users from non-drug users it's Mm -hmm. still stating that the real important people will run this organization and you people over here just can veto things that you don't like when really we should state this this is their community and their agency they should be the ones in the top, saying, "This is what we want. This is, you know, and they should have the same expectations of being a fundraiser, being, you know, making policy." And something that I think people really miss when people talk about peer programs, they say, "Oh, well, it can't work because they're not irresponsible. They can't do these things." And what you're saying is to have it have the people time reduction run successfully. We need less, of a tenth of one percent, of drug users in the north end of Seattle to be responsible in order to run this organization. And if you don't believe that you can, we can produce that many responsible people, then you have serious bias towards this community and any community, you, any peer community you feel cannot do the job. Um, because it doesn't take, you know, the entire society to be responsible to run one agency. It takes a very minute amount of people to be responsible. Um, and if you don't believe that you can produce in any community that amount of people, then, you know, you have some real, I would say, bigotry towards that community.
2: Okay. Uh, I was just going to say, when our, our advisory board actually doesn't have a vote on anything. So our executive board is the only one that votes. And that's made up almost all of, uh, of us, the drinkers, the members of the support group. We have one professional on the executive board, and that's it. The advisory board, it, the, it has two purposes. One, we can get famous people there that don't have so much time to participate, but they'll lend their name. And then every once in a while, we have a question that we really don't know the answer to. And we throw that out to, the, to our professional advisory board and say, what do you think of this question? And then it comes back and the executive board votes on it. But it, it's, it can be good, to you know, because you can get people like Pat Denning or Alan Marlatt or some of these better-known people to be there, but they don't have to, you know, actually be making the actual board meetings where you're doing the dirty, nitty-gritty business.
1: Yeah. I, just, I, I guess, it, it, you know, in some ways our advisory board, in the way you describe it, is our table staff. You know, because we're almost entirely a volunteer operation. You know, and we have professional people on all levels, um, you know, of our organization. Um, And you know, I find it's really the thing. Okay, I can tell you this: the thing that was most surprising for me in the effects of being peer-run was it was at first with the peers, which wasn't surprising. And second, it was with the people who had never used drugs, right? And it was – and we get these a lot of times. We get students and we get people who aren't – don't necessarily have a strong community or don't necessarily feel like they're attached to a a larger purpose. And they come to volunteer and they get to know the peers and they get to know people. And then the peers slowly start considering them equal members of their family and – the non-peer becomes these kind of adopted members of the drug-using community, and they become these family members, and they become very proud to be members of this family and very defensive against the, you know, people who are trying to discriminate this family, you know. And there was, for me, there was this moment where I, I saw this greater, this unforeseen greater good when this woman who was in a sorority uh, saw one of the people who come in the neo exchange who volunteers with us who was also homeless being harassed by some college kids while she was asking for spare change. And she goes running up to this per, uh, uh, person and, and just starts screaming at all of the students who are yelling at them and grabbing this homeless woman in her hand and said, this is my sister, this is my family, You don't ever you know, effing mess with my family. Again, and you realize that, like, you know, there was this larger family connection that I don't couldn't be foreseen to be made that can only pres- be described as beautiful and can only affect the drug user in a positive way and the non-drug user in a positive way. And it really shows that we are members of the same society, and this person... Had kind of lost her own stigma towards drug users, and you know saw someone being discriminated against and pushed back.
2: That's a great story, and it's actually a great place to end this segment because our next guest is here. So I want to thank you very much, Shiloh, for being our guest tonight.
1: Hey, have a very wonderful day, and I look forward to talking to you anytime in the future.
2: Okay, thanks a lot. We're going to cut you off and bring on our next person right now. Hello, Michelle, are you there? I am here. Well, welcome to the show. This is Michelle Dunbar, who, um, you're the executive director, right? Correct. Executive director at St. Jude Retreat House. Um yes. After, after, a half, after a half hour of talk, my brain has to shift gears for a minute here. But I've, I, I've got my question sheet handy because I, I pre-formulated some questions because we're going to okay. get into a lot of uh, details and numbers and things. But we're going to start with, um, okay, there is a Baldwin Research Institute and there is St. Jude Retreat House. And how are they connected, which came first, and how did one lead to the other?
0: Well, Baldwin Research actually came first. Um, In 1989, um, one of the the founders of Baldwin Research began, you know, asking the question, um, is there a different way to help people overcome drug problems and alcohol problems? And um, he had been a member of Alcoholics Anonymous for many years, um, never really, never really bought into the disease notion. Um, but he, he was really tired of watching people go in and out, specifically young people. Um, and he had tried to help people for so long, uh, that he knew that this wasn't, what he, what they were doing there wasn't working, and he knew that there had to be a better way. Um, so really that's how Baldwin research was born. Was you know one man wondering if there was a way he could truly help young people.
2: So he and
0: the, yeah the Saint Jude Retreat House. What once the research got off the ground and you realized, well here's here's the interesting thing. He started you know telling people you don't have a disease, you're not powerless. Um, you absolutely can change your life just like I changed mine. He changed his in 1976, and um and he goes and you're not gonna. Um, you know, as long as you know that, as long as we're starting from the premise that you have control over your behaviors, your choices, your thoughts, um, anything we do from here is positive. And that's when, you know, that you got the idea of I'm going to open a house. I'm going to have people come in and actually um, actually live. You know, a lot of people that, you know, people he was helping didn't have places to live. Um, he was, you know, divorced. He had a large house. And he invited people to come into his house, and that's how the St. Should Retreat House was born.
2: Okay. Uh, has the Baldwin Research Institute, have they published any of their research? Is it available?
0: It is available at baldwinresearch.com. Um, and they, the Baldwin Research Project of 1990, it was actually completed in 1990, was uh, the, the project that started Um, basically the program and the retreat house uh, idea. Um, And the retreat house actually started as the Hegeman Guest House. It was located in Hegeman, New York. Um, It still is, but now it's the St. Jude Retreat House, and we have different locations.
2: Now, I know a lot of uh, treatment centers just, uh, you know, they claim to have really high success rates, and then when you start looking at them, you find out that they didn't count any of their dropouts and that they're up the numbers inside their own organization. They don't contract with an independent research firm. Right. But do you contract with an independent research firm?
0: We do. We do. We have used um, U.S. Fields and Research was the first one that we contracted with. We originally did do our own numbers, and we do do them based on program graduates. We have about an average over 20 years of an 85% completion rate. Um, so we would take our completion, people who completed the program, and um, that's what the surveys would be based on. But I believe it was 2004 was when we first contracted with U.S. Field and Research to do our first the first survey. It was extremely expensive. It was thanks to a donation from a benefactor that we could do it. Um, I do understand why programs don't do this because it's, for some, it's probably it, it's cost prohibitive. Um, but it was important to our board of directors that, uh, that we are true to our research, um, and then we have since contracted with Clearwater Research out of Idaho, um, and this year we are contracting with Siena Research Institute here in Albany.
2: Well, I think it's an extremely important thing for people for uh, treatment programs to do is to contract with an independent research organization uh, this is the primary reason why i'm a, a big supporter now of saint june retreat because i saw that you did this you got the outside research institute to come and look at the numbers and crunch the numbers and we're completely honest about this and you know if a, if a treatment center doesn't do this they don't have my trust
0: right right and, and it's scary truthfully Every time they come out, I, I, you know, I have butterflies because whatever they are, we're going to pub- publish them for everyone to see. And, you know, I, I, I like it. I know 60% is great, but I, I want it to be 80%, 90%. You know, I want it to be up there. But, I, you know, even 50% is unheard of in the industry. So, And it's abstinence-based. Um, There are people who successfully moderate or have come through for, um, you know, heroin when they were in their 20s, now they're in their 30s or 40s, and they say, I'm not going to lie to you, I had a glass of wine last week with dinner, um, and my life is unbelievable. With Sienna this year, for the first year, we're going to be actually measuring those kinds of quality of life. We're still going to have an abstinence-based rate, um, but we're also going to have um, you know, have these other numbers that measure, do you feel you have control over your life now? You know, um, mm-hmm, do you feel mm-hmm. that, did you go and change things? Maybe you stayed abstinent for 10 or 15 years, you grew up, you moved on with your life, um, and now you, you are a social drinker or um, or maybe you have a glass of champagne at New Year's or something to that effect.
2: Now, one of the problems I've seen with uh, with certain treatment programs that do self-reporting is when you look closer, they didn't count any of their dropouts, and maybe 75% of people that entered the program or 90% didn't complete it. Right. And they say our graduates have this have this high success rate, you know, 70%. But you know, when you actually count everybody that went through the program, it's like less than 10%. Right. So. Nice. And I I saw that uh I looked at the your the reports online from Clearwater and they did count everyone and they counted dropouts mm-hmm. too so what what is your completion rate
0: Our completion rate's 85% um you know it's fluctuated over the years but uh, but by and large this year, it, it is exactly eighty-five percent for the t- two thousand eleven. Two thousand ten It was down to about eighty percent, um, but out of that, only it, only about five um, percent are asked actually asked to leave the program because of substance use, um, which is which is awesome. It's an awesome number, and of those people, many of them do come back and com- and su- successfully complete the program at a later date. Um, but it is we've started in this last couple of years allowing at our executive retreat um, people to stay to not you know to sign up for four weeks because we were finding people couldn't get time off from work um, and or you know they a lot of people assume 28 day program so that's all that they that they can do um, so we do have the, our one retreat house that will allow uh, shorter lengths of stay or will allow them. To, to combine, you know, coming for a few weeks and also doing our home program for a few weeks. So, so that's kind of skewed the numbers a little bit. But it's still been a first minimum six-week stay um, about
2: 85%. That's a really good completion rate. Yes. And then uh, for the people that do complete, um, how many do stay sober afterwards or stay completely abstinent?
0: um that that rate is right around 60%. Um now that could mean it, the way that our completion our our sobriety rates work um is it's because we have multiple data points. Um the question that's asked is very binary. It's within the last 30 days have you, you know, drank or used drugs? Um and then we call a corroborating well we the the, the independent organization calls a corroborating witness um, that says has this person drank or used drugs in the last 30 days. Um, by and large, if if you haven't done it in 30 days, you're not doing it. Um, but but because we have the multiple data points over the course of 20 years, um, that's why it statistically holds with uh, with you know the sob- sobriety rates. Um, so that means that some people left the program you know we estimate that within the first month of, of people leaving the program, about fifty percent are going to test the waters um, and then that rate you know as people uh, get further away from the program, um, that rate goes up to sixty percent sober so so that that 's what our estimates are based on these, this research.
2: Now, I noticed when Clearwater did their reports, there were quite a few people that uh, they could, they were unable to contact. How did those numbers uh, figure in?
0: Well, they, you know what, I, it, I'm always confused as to how that works, honestly. Um, what they do is, they for them, they count them as not sober, um, you know, and I, I always kind of, it had the first few years that we were, um, you know, we kind of came in at the the, uh, the computer age, and when we started everything, no computers, no nothing. Everything was done paper by paper, and it was really difficult to find people once they left the program. So that first research, that <laughs> this first survey that we did, was very tedious. Um, but for those for their purposes, we had to count them as as drunk um, you know, that, that was that was the fair thing to do.
2: But it's changed now, uh, with the uh the more recent surveys? Have have you had a lot better rates of contacting oh, absolutely. people?
0: Absolutely. Okay. We have we've diligently tried to find the people that for the first, I want to say, for the, right up until 2000, we opened in 1992. Um, for the people from, like, 92 to 2000, we really had better record-keeping, computer record-keeping. Um, we're trying to find everybody, and we've been fairly successful at it. Now it's, it's you know, with Facebook and, and everything on the Internet, it's it's much easier to find people.
2: Okay. Do you only have a residential program, or do you have other programs?
0: We actually do have a, a home version of our program, which is very similar to the to the curriculum that we teach in our retreats. Um, it can be ordered online and shipped to, to whoever wants it. They can do it in the privacy of their home, or if they want to, they can have a uh, you know schedule uh, online Skype class, like a, right on uh, you know either Skype or Uvu or one of those um, video conferencing softwares. Um, and now we've recently opened an a satellite uh office in Manhattan where we have um uh a certified instructor that meets with people one on one in private um so so the people of New York now have someone they can go to uh, you know uh, on a you know on a day class basis
2: so an outpatient
0: yeah yeah, so to speak. It is. We don't call patients. They're guests and students. So it would be, it would be more like, um, uh, you know, it, and it's at the, the person's convenience. I mean, he's got a flexible schedule, so people are working, you know, they take an hour off three days a week. They can go in and do the class. They can continue with their daily life.
2: Okay. And you said there's a six-week program. There's a four-week version. Are there any, that's, are there any where people stay longer than six weeks?
0: Yes, we have a continuing education program um, where they can elect to stay one to four additional weeks. Um, And that really is geared towards a couple different kinds of people. Um, One is the person who just really feels like, geez, I need more time to feel confident in, in a new way of life. Um, the the other person is someone who may be changing careers and they really want some time to get a resume together. We have a, a career and academic advisor that works with them directly. We've had people um find, you know, find jobs while still in our program halfway across the country. Um, you know, or if somebody needs to secure housing or you know they're or work on specific problems such as relationship problems or um or maybe they have some mental health issues that there's a psychiatrist that that does work with our guests separately um so maybe they want to stay so they can continue meeting with him
2: so you uh do you have a lot of people that are dual diagnosis you just mentioned that
0: oh yeah. That has that's an interesting phenomenon actually because um, in 2002 when I really I really started working full time here um, it, it was less than a third of the people that came in were dual diagnosed and now it's well over two thirds um, you know and I think part of that is insurance um, you know insurance a lot of times will pay for people who are treatment only if they are dual diagnosed um, I, I I definitely don't think it's because mental illness is more prevalent. I think it's just because a lot of things qualify now that didn't used to. Um, So we do. And our program really does address uh, faulty thinking, depression. know, depression can be a result of just very repetitive negative habitual thinking. And Mm -hmm. um, same with anxiety.
2: Mm -hmm. Do you use a cognitive behavioral approach for these?
0: Yes, we do. Um, But it is cognitive behavioral education as opposed to therapy. Um, You know, we make the distinction because therapy tends not to be as effective. Um, The therapeutic approach tends not to be as effective with substance users. Um, Substance users don't need to be manipulated into uh, thinking differently. Um, Then they they reject it. I mean, really, therapy is designed to manipulate people of sorts, whereas education is designed to provide options and to to help people become their own therapist, basically.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. A few months back, we had David Burns on the show, and I I really liked his book, Feeling Good, and I think it's really kind of a self-educational resource. So it was really good, I think, for you know, depression and anxiety and things. So I, I assume that mm-hmm. you're quite similar to that approach.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. We have, we've read a, a lot of, we've recorded a lot of different books like that, Um, you know, like The Happiness Advantage uh, by Sean Aker. Um, it, it you know, where people, it, there are people that, have, that are prone to thinking more negatively, just like, you know, as much as we don't, you know, we don't, you know, subscribe to the notion that, well, this is, you know, addiction is a disease, it's inherited, there are definitely people that are high-energy people and people that are more prone to depressive thinking. Um, but that doesn't mean you're relegated to that your whole life. It just means maybe you have to work a little extra harder or, or put a little bit more effort in into becoming a more optimistic, happy person. But that ultimately the choice is yours, whatever you want to do. Now, what
2: proportion of your clientele are teens and what proportion are adults?
0: Um, We probably get about one fifth teens. Um, You know, we always have at least two or three teens here at a time. Um, You know, we do have a, a, a strong showing it's about a third of the people are between 18 and 25, um, probably about a third are between 25 and 40, and then the other third are over 40. So so we do have a good cross-section of the population.
2: So it's actually a lot more adults now. It's oh, yeah, adults? you know,
0: that's another thing that's changed dramatically over the years. Where we were, um, where our average age used to be in the early 20s, Um, now we found overall in all of our retreat houses, our average age is right around 36 years old.
2: Okay. I want to ask a little bit about the content of your program. You already said it's not a disease model, and I assume that it's not like the 12 steps to tell. There's no powerlessness. There's no higher power.
0: Is that correct? No, that's correct. That's correct. It is, um, it's completely, uh, cognitive behaviorally based in that it's about um, changing the way you think, changing your belief system. The majority of people that come into our program have been to one or more treatment programs. Um, so we, uh, we have to undo a lot of what they've learned to even get them to the point where they believe they can change. Um, mm-hmm. So the first, for it, it, the first phase of the program really is about undoing the, the cultural uh, idea that you are powerless. Um, Because it isn't just with people who have been to treatment, but it is a a kind of almost a cultural thing now in our country um, where people just assume, well, an addict is an addict and, you know, they can't help themselves. Um, And then the second phase of the program is an intensive self-analysis. And our instructors simply guide people through that process, which can be a little bit scary for some people where they really get a good idea of how they got where they are um, who who are they? Why do they make the choices that they do? Um, and you, you get a good sense of okay, I you know I do this because of this, and this you know I'm somebody who is a kind of a negative thinker, and you really get a good idea of what you want to change in your life. I mean, then the third phase of the program is is literally building a blueprint of the person you want to become, um, and making those changes.
2: So the three phases
0: total. Three phases total.
2: Okay, are there any uh, samples of the curriculum online?
0: There are. There are right on our primary website, which is soberforever.net. Um, and if you go to I think it's um the, the program page towards the bottom you can it'll ask you, it'll show you a, a link where you can preview the text. Um, it's soberforever.net forward slash preview text. Um, is where you would find it, and um, you can actually look in each chapter and and see an excerpt from each chapter of the program.
2: Okay, I've run through the questions that I specifically wanted to ask you, uh, but you can feel free now to tell me anything that you would like specifically to tell me about the the Saint Jude program.
0: Um, you know, I think I, I think that the thing that most that sets us apart. From a lot of other programs, is the staff. Um, the staff that I have is they're truly gifted people, um, they've come from all different professions and um I know a lot of programs employ people that have come through their programs. You know, we don't exclusively do that. For a while we did. Um and I you know, I think it shortchanged some of uh, some of what the new people coming in um not to have this wide array of people in different experiences. Um I have people with education backgrounds, I have people with um with you know social work backgrounds, psychology backgrounds, research backgrounds, um, but everybody has come together for a common goal, which is, geez, we're going to we're going to show people if they can do whatever they want with their life. I mean, what a, what a great great way to come to work every day, knowing that that's what you're helping people to do is um, is build the life that they want. And and every, you know it, it's the holiday time, so we tend to get a lot of our program graduates calling us, contacting us, and thanking us. Um, and we actually got two today. Um, that called and said, "Geez, you know, I came to your program four years ago, and, um, and my life is forever changed. And I wanted to call you and thank you. Um, and and I, I mean, it's just, and it's and it's never people you would expect, you know, that would make that call. Um, but but it it does happen, and um and, and and the staff is just, I you know, it's everybody's not just a number. Everybody's not just, I uh, you know." Six weeks goes by in a flash, but, boy, they're really with the guests all the time, and they really do take the time to get to know each and every guest and really try and help them to the best that they can.
2: Uh, Well, I do want to ask a couple more questions now that I think of them. Um, How many locations do you have?
0: We have three locations. Um, All three are currently in upstate New York. Um, and it, it's it's, uh, it's beautiful to come here any time of year, um, but one of them is located in the Adirondack Mountains. Um, the other two are in the Mohawk Valley in New York.
2: And are you growing?
0: We are. We are. You know, and I think we're, we're what we're doing is over the course of the last several years, we've been watching the market trends, and the trends are outpatient. Um, Less and less people are going into residential programs. We get more and more people that are calling us that are gainfully employed, uh, that can't take the time away from work. So we are branching out in that area specifically, um, and we are looking to actually have satellite offices um, that can be located in in some of the larger metropolitan areas around the country. We can only do it as fast as we can train people, to take it over um, in those areas. And and the training is relatively extensive. Um this this young man that we have teaching for us now in in New York is actually a a, a life coach and he's he's worked with Stanton Peel um and, and he came through our program ten years ago. Um and then, you know, he, he really wanted to devote his life to, to I mean to changing changing things, changing the way the treatment industry was um and is today. So, so he, so he agreed to, to take on this project with us. We do hope to open a few more retreat houses at some point in the future. Um, the problem with going to different states is the regulations can be so onerous um, mm-hmm. that you know <laughs> it, it it can be cost prohibitive, actually, especially for a, a not for profit such as ours.
2: Well, one of the ways I heard about your program, I've been hearing about it on and off uh, for quite a few years now, but. My friends um, Mary Ellen Barnes and Ed Wilson over in uh, California who do their non-12-step program were telling me that uh, they, they always refer teenagers to you because they feel like they're too old to treat teenagers. So that's, that's why I was, one reason I was interested.
0: Yes, they have referred a few people to us. Um, and um, and the thing about the program that's so appealing to teens and their families is that, they're, that they know their teens are not going to be um, relegated to a lifetime of of meetings. And, um, you know, what teen wants to hear, you're going to struggle with this forever and, you know, you're never going to be able to have a, you know, you're not going to be able to drink champagne at your wedding and you're not going to be able to, um, uh, you know, have a normal life you know, no teen wants to hear that. And and what our program really does focus on is maturation um, because the majority of people will mature out of substance use problems. I mean, if you look at SAMHSA's numbers, uh, they, they bear that out. You know, the alcohol and drug use peaks between the ages of 18 and 25. And mm-hmm. the vast majority of people stop it altogether, stop um, using drugs and alcohol altogether or successfully moderate by age 30. So, you know, you watch, there's a curve, and it's been that way forever since SAMHSA's been keeping their numbers. So what we help teens to do is know, number one, that they can overcome the problem, and number two, help them to mature through that phase much faster.
2: So you do tell them when they're an adult that it is okay to have an occasional glass of champagne at a wedding or something like that?
0: You know, we're an abstinence-based program. But we leave the choice up to them in the end. Um, You know, we highly recommend, look, at if you have a problem drinking uh, or using substances, we highly recommend that you go through an extended period of abstinence and really address your motives. Um, for what you're doing um but but certainly don't look at it from the point of view as, uh, you know view of which most teens would is oh my god I'm doomed I can never do this again don't look at it like that look at it like okay I'm I, I'm you know I need to reassess my priorities and get my life straight um and I also need uh, to gain A good idea Somebody told me once You can start drinking again When you don't care about it When it doesn't mean Anything to you anymore Um, Now I didn't For 20 years You know And um, And it 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 didn't You know It it became so Foreign to me The idea of Using substances Or drinking Became so foreign to me That it almost Seemed absurd Um, And so that's what They were talking about Is you know if, If it's your everything Be sure that it Means nothing to you Um, And and really change your
2: priorities Well, I think it's really important that there be a safe and effective place that you know Parents can send teenagers to if they feel that need because there are many programs out there that are extremely Abusive scary a few weeks ago. We had uh, Survivors of straight incorporated on and they were talking about the wasp program and you know just torture It's just torture
0: it It is we have we work um like this year alone, we had to work with four different families to get their children out of those kinds of programs, one in Florida and one in Texas specifically um, that come to mind and where these programs were actually um in the end kidnapping these kids and and trying to get court orders to keep the parents away um was the one in Florida specifically was, um, you know, wanted to medic- heavily medicate her 16-year-old daughter. And the mother called in tears and said, i got to get them out of here. I want them to come to your program. I want her to come to your program. Um, and so we, I mean, we had to get the law enforcement involved. And it is very, very frightening. And, um, and, I, and I tell parents when they're looking at programs, I'm like, do not send your child to a program where you can't have unlimited access to them. Um, This is a minor child. It's your job to to ensure that they're safe. And any program that denies you access to your child is not a safe program.
2: Well, I can certainly agree with that. Our time is up now, so I want to thank you very much for being our guest tonight, Michelle Dunbar.
0: Thank you so much.
2: And everybody, come back next week when our guest will be Howard Josepher, From exponents in New York City also called Project Arrive Uh, this is like one of the first harm reduction programs uh, ever started in New York City works with a lot of people getting out of prison it's uh, very helpful to them and our second guest uh, next week will be Ray Eden Frank she was executive director at Access Works Needle Exchange in Minnesota while I was volunteering there and is the person that basically trained me in needle exchange and in I should say in harm reduction programs and the harm reduction philosophy. Thank you everyone for listening to the show and good night.
0: Good night. With Lucky Land Slut, you can get lucky just about anywhere.